Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, welcome. Happy Easter. The news of the morning is simple and yet magnificent. Christ is risen. Now, human beings are rumor-making machines. It's kind of in our nature. It's kind of what we do. We come up with rumors. We look for rumors. We spread rumors. It's pretty cross-cultural as well. Um, I'm sure some of you here in this room enjoy good rumor. And uh, perhaps some of you in this room have even started some good rumors here or there. Um, Rumors seem to be the sociology study rumors Um, say what characterizes a a good rumor, one that will spread fast and and quickly, is that it's about something important, that it is interesting and relevant, it might change something, and that it's unlikely. It otherwise would be difficult to believe. And this is why in in our day and age, rumors slowly turn into conspiracy theories. This seems to be the moment of uh, world history that we're in, the, the moment of, of conspiracy theories. Um, rumors can be true and they can be false. Some can, can definitely be false and, and some have um, levels of truth to them that entertain us. Uh, I was thinking this week through uh, some of the rumors I'm familiar with throughout history and some of the big lies that have been told, some of the more interesting truths that have been found out. And I came across uh, a story I had forgotten. It's, it's from 2013. So in April of 2013, the Associated Press Twitter put out a tweet proclaiming that President then Obama had been injured at an explosion at the White House. And the world naturally kind of flipped out. People were, this was the 24-hour news cycles geared up, okay? And this was what they were running every hour upon every hour. And in fact, when news like this comes out, it has real-world consequences. And so the market, the stock market, went in a nosedive. And within the first hour of this tweet being out, um, the estimates are $4.8 million were lost from the, the stock market. And this rumor had been circulating and circulating and circulating. And finally, someone, probably like Snopes.com writer, okay, they're good at this thing. They got to the bottom of it, and it was an 18-year-old who was able to hack the AP's Twitter, so she had press this Twitter, and, and with just a, a sentence, he was able to uh, take some money away from some people who didn't want it taken away there in the stock market. A rumor that, that spreads and, and has uh, implications that are, are negative. Um, one of my favorite rumors is... Uh, a long-standing rumor, which is that the Dalai Lama is actually a secret agent of the CIA. Now, you've probably guessed this yourself, just observing the Dalai Lama, different things going on in the world. And for a lot of years, this seemed like a silly conspiracy theory. This seemed like a silly rumor um, until the CIA was forced to declassify documents. And it was found out that in the, the 1960s, the Dalai Lama was earning almost $200,000 a year from the CIA. 
as uh, an agent to uh, report on some of the political things happening in the, the areas of the world where he had capital. And perhaps this is why he's smiling in every picture. I understand. I mean, he some spiritual peace, perhaps, but a $200,000 check, I think, would also get me a, a big cheese in front of a camera um, many times. Uh, you've all probably had rumors affect your own life. Perhaps someone started a rumor and it goes through the kind of rumor mill and it's not true, but it's flattering about you. And you're like, okay, we'll, we'll roll with this. Perhaps a rumor's been started that was negative and that hurts you. Perhaps you've been involved in spreading a rumor that hurt someone else. This is just a daily part of our lives as human beings. And, and it's been this way for a very, very, very long time. It's cross-cultural. It goes back throughout history. Um, I teach a theology class at Houston Baptist University, and one of the things that they do for college students is there's a website called ratemyprofessor.com where you can give your opinion on a professor, and I take a poll usually at the end of the semester and say, how many of you went to ratemyprofessor.com before you registered for the class? It's usually about 80% or so, Um, and I'll get this. I got this actually just a couple weeks ago. Um, um, So the comments are like, he's nice. He's generous. He's smart. They have a weird, like, hotness raider. I'm serious. I don't know why they would do this. It seems way inappropriate. But I'm the only one in our department who has the, the chili pepper. <laughs> and a lot of the comments are, you know, generous, nice. You know, he'll, he'll help you out. And I had a student um, not do very well on a test, uh, a midterm test, and, and he came up to me and kind of in a complaining, accusatory way was like, I had been told that you were different. I didn't know that, that you failed people on tests. I was like, you were told wrong. I don't know. I don't know where that rumor got started, but hopefully you can start to, to quell it. You can st- start to, to, to stop it. We, we hear stuff all the time, um, things that seem outrageous or unbelievable, um, things that seem unlikely. Um, we hear things sometimes that we just simply have an aversion to until we have proof that satisfies our own standards of belief. Um, rumors, it turns out, are what begin the resurrection story. It's a a, a rumor about something that's happened. It's not been verified, though, at first, right? There's, it's, it seems unbelievable at first. In fact, in Luke 24, 11, when one of the early witnesses tells the rest of the disciples that Jesus has been resurrected, they reject it as, quote, idle talk and choose not to believe. And that, that word for idle talk is the word leros in Greek, and it uh, means nonsense, I uh, found a, a kind of sentence summary that, that tried to illustrate the various uses in the, the first century of that word, and it was a claim that no one finds believable. And some of their earliest claims to Jesus' Russians were, were, in fact, that perhaps this is just a rumor. This is, this is confusing. It's mysterious. But this, indeed, seems to be hard to believe, and, and we need proof of it ourselves. Easter is a time when we're exposed to the rumor of the resurrection. I'm guessing most of us in this room, for 
a good majority of our lives have at some point or another been exposed to the rumor of resurrection. This rumor, this, this thing that people are saying and passing around, that a first century Palestinian Jewish peasant who had gained kind of a following, got known for teaching and healing, that after he was crucified, like Rome did to many people who behaved the way Jesus behaved, that on a Sunday morning, news began to spread that Jesus, the one who had died, who had been buried, had now come back alive. I think sometimes we, we downplay the shock of this, even the continued truth of this. The claim that Jesus is alive, what that means to us today is not just that he's alive in our hearts or we feel his presence close to us. I mean, the, the teeth of the Christian claim is that imagine a man in the first century. He's alive. He's embodied, participates in life. He has a heart that beats, neurons that fire. The Christian claim goes so far as to say, as alive as that man was in the first century, he's still alive. Up to and including this day, ascended at the right hand of the Father. Now something transformed when he walks through death and is resurrected. But he doesn't lose his humanity he doesn't lose his sense of aliveness. If anything, he gains more of it. He's, he's more human. He's more physical. He's more alive now as he's passed through the, the threshold of death, never to die again. We've heard these rumors. Many of us have also heard rumors of resurrection about the work of the resurrection. Christians believe that Jesus' resurrection ushered in, unleashed upon the world a a power of new creation, that God was now at work beginning to set up his kingdom, transforming individual people in the community of his body through the power of spirits to do things that otherwise couldn't have been done, to love their enemies, to love one another, to serve, to sacrifice, to be willing to give up their own lives. I'm guessing throughout our lives, we've seen rumors of resurrection in the lives of other people and situations around us. We've heard of the person struggling with addiction for most of their lives, who then says that upon meeting Jesus, they find freedom. And we've heard rumors of someone who has had a horrible tragedy happen to them in their life. And yet they're able to choose and find joy in the midst of grief because of the resurrection life of Jesus. The question I want to ask this morning is whether these rumors are true. Whether we believe that they're true and whether we've experienced them as true. And then perhaps how we might go forward in order to not settle just for rumors, but to to grasp our hands onto the real thing the resurrection of Christ, the life that he has come to bring. I want to do that by looking at how the first recipients of the news reacted to Jesus' resurrection announcement. If you have a Bible, flip with me to uh, Mark chapter 16. He's going to be our conversation partner this morning. Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. 
Mark is our first account of the Gospels, of the, the story of Jesus. His account of the resurrection is the first account we get out of the four Gospels of the resurrection. And you'll notice in Mark, probably on that same page, there's some parentheses after verse 8 and in front of verse 9. And if you were to read and do some study, what, what this will tell you is, Almost all scholars are pretty sure that when Mark was written, it ends after verse 8. That the first copies of Mark just went in chapter 12 from verse 1 to verse 8. We'll see why people very quickly decided it might be better to add on and round out the story. But I want to argue this morning, actually, that Mark's original ending has its own value to add to us, has its own perspective and that maybe even especially in our world and in the moment in our world we find ourselves, it has truth and hope and, and meaning to speak to us. So let's read together um, Mark um, 16, verse 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, the mother of James, or Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? I think this week was the first time I ever asked myself this question. The women go early in the morning, Sunday morning, to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. What was their expectation about the stone? Did they think there'd be guards there that would move it for them? Did they kind of think they'd wait there and see if anyone could help them? It's a big stone blocking the tomb. Luckily, they show up and it's been taken care of. Looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. Verse 5, entering to the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. How often is it that God chooses to come and reminds us that the places we're seeking for life aren't the places where he has planned to give us life? Who you're looking for, he's not here. He's risen. See the place where they laid him, verse 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. So the woman hear something from this man, and then he gives them instructions. Go tell the disciples, go tell Peter, and then go meet him in Galilee. There you'll see him, just as he has told you. Verse 8, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Imagine, if you will, this is how Mark's gospel story ends. And we immediately notice big differences from the stories in Matthew and in Mark and in John. It ends, it seems, with confusion and disobedience, fearfulness. The Greek construction of this last verse is, is a little more um, emphatic and, and kind of funny to me. It says, they, they said nothing to anyone, and the way the words are ordered is because... Afraid was the reason that because is the last word of the entire gospel. 
the, the story is itself beautiful as it is mysterious. The women go to the tomb on the first day of the week. They're in serious shock and sorrow and trauma. They find the tomb open. The stones rolled away. And then they find a young man there. Now, in the other Gospels, this seems to be an angel or two angels. Mark, though, doesn't want us to imagine this is an angel. It's just a young man. He's sitting there. This is a young man that we have been told nothing about. We've never seen him before in the Gospel of Mark. We assume these women don't know who he is. And we never find anything else more out about this young man. But he's the one chilling inside the tomb with the body missing. And he gives them a rumor, news, something that might be hard to believe. He says, the man you've come to see, he's, he's risen. He has been resurrected. And he gives them two instructions. Go tell the disciples and then go to Galilee. Galilee is up north of where this tomb would have been. It would have been a good little travel. Galilee is where Jesus did most of his ministry. And so you notice right off the bat that in the Gospel of Mark, there are no resurrection appearances in this at least short original ending. There is no moment where the disciples turn a corner into belief and start to powerfully follow the resurrected Christ. It's open-ended. It's ambiguous. It's couched in rumor and mystery. You think you can understand the fear of these women. Imagine if you had lost a loved one. I know many of us in this room have lost loved ones this year. Imagine if, if, if you lost a loved one and, and you went to the gravesite to, to sit and to pray, to think. And as you showed up, there was a hole where the grave should have been. And there's a 16-year-old sitting there. And you don't know him. You don't know who he is. He's got a white robe on, so you're like, he's got to be somewhat trustworthy. And he tells you, are you looking for your loved one? They're not here, I'm sorry. What you need to do, go tell your family, and then head up to Dallas. And you'll see him there. You'll find him there. And you might, I'm guessing, leave trembling and afraid, not wanting to tell your family not exactly sure what is going on. What I like about Mark's short ending, despite the kind of weirdness of it, is I think that it's very much true to the nature of Easter as we experience it. The resurrection of Christ is a good announcement. It's good news. It's something that's happened in the world, something God has done and God will continue to do in the world. But the resurrection of Christ is, like for the women, something that we have no verifiable firsthand evidence of, at least that a historian or scientist would, would, would accept. It is something that we've not seen with our own eyes. Like the women, it's something we're receiving secondhand that we must decide whether to place our faith in or not. I think Mark's ending and the reaction we see here often lines up with our own reactions to the, the story, to the, to the narrative of Easter morning. We often celebrate Easter with a lot of fanfare. And I, I love to do this as well. 
Uh, John is my other favorite Easter story passage. And in the Gospel of John, there's just so much confusion and fear. But John very beautifully narrates how the disciples come around and how they recognize Jesus and believe in Jesus. And John would probably invite us to have a similar sort of resurrection experience when we remember and when we celebrate. But even in John, Easter originally wasn't a bold and confident event. It was quiet and frightening. It was confusing. It was something that seemed perhaps like idle talk, that we're not sure whether we should believe or not. When we celebrate Easter, and we celebrate with this fanfare, focusing on the victory of Christ, you know, because Christians say that that in Jesus' resurrection, death and evil and Satan have been defeated. And that in Jesus' resurrection, God's project of new creation, making all things new, has begun. That the power of the Spirit that had been present in Jesus has now been unleashed into the world in and through his people. And yet, we live in a world where it's not always apparent that death has been defeated. And it's not always super apparent that a work of new creation is beginning and happening. It's not always readily apparent that the power of the Spirit is working, working dramatically. When we celebrate Easter, sometimes we fall trapped into a trap, into a temptation to do like a gaze aversion maneuver, where we focus on the victory and joy of the resurrection while we ignore the suffering and death that you find elsewhere. I don't know if you've heard the news. There were three churches that were recently destroyed. It's a different thing to worship Easter on a Sunday where you're forced to remember that this world is not God's kingdom completely as it is in heaven. I think, though, uh, the short ending of Mark is the Easter story for a world in which we're burdened by the tragedies around us. What are our claims of victory, of evil, of death, and Satan being defeated worth? What are our claims of new creation and radical transformation being available worth? What of our claims that resurrection joy is loose and running around in the world? Because sometimes it feels like nothing has changed. In a world of death and death and death, I think we have to let skeptics ask their question. The question being, where in hell is the evidence of Easter? And I don't say that to curse. I say that to be precisely theological. Where in this hellish world are the traces of this victory? Are the evidence of what God has accomplished and is doing in the lives of his people? We might say, when it comes to looking for this evidence, the Gospels, including the Gospel of Mark, seem to indicate this evidence is something we must find. Go to Galilee. Go see him there. Go recognize him somewhere else. When it comes to verifying the resurrection, letting these rumors sink into our hearts, 
it seems that Mark says the evidence of this resurrection lingers yet in the future. If you want to see it, go to Galilee and follow Jesus into the future. If you want to see it, base your life choices based on faith in the resurrection. But let me suggest both John and Mark present the truth that running home scared is a perfectly normal response to the news of resurrection. If my sermon ends and you run home scared, I'm going to question myself. But you would not be reacting any differently than these disciples did when they first really were hit with the truth of this news. In multiple gospel accounts, we find fear, concerns, preventing people from really understanding and fully living into it. I think this is beautiful. I think this means that we still have room for faith, even if we're confused or scared. That there's room for questions, even for us in the resurrection story. Now, for some of us, the resurrection joy comes quickly and easily. And we can feel and taste and claim that power. And that's to be praised, to, to give thanks for. But for others of us, it doesn't come so easily. It's an ongoing process. It's not always as stable as we'd like it to be. I love the open-endedness, the ambiguity of the ending of Mark's account. I think it communicates to us some really important ideas. Things like it's okay to have your doubts about the resurrection. You're in good company. I've been talking to a handful of different people the past few weeks about this idea, the belief that Jesus resurrected from the dead, and, and, and they are wanting to follow Christ. They are wanting to experience the life of Christ. They're just not sure whether they can, like, could sign a piece of paper saying Jesus resurrected from the dead. And, and my advice to them has been, like, that's okay. I believe Jesus is resurrected. I would hope you get to that place, but there's nothing written anywhere that you have to be there now that Jesus is threatened by you not arriving at that conclusion now. God has patience with us, and we should have patience with ourselves. I think it tells us it's okay if it takes us time to believe and or experience the resurrection life. You know, we, we, we face all kinds of life situations that cause us to walk in this path of fear and trembling. Some of us, it's intellectual, scientific. In our Enlightenment worldview, we go, miracles like that don't happen. Dead people don't come back from the ground. We have a hard time believing. For some of us, it's sin in our life, things that that we struggle to be freed from, to be transformed, that makes us doubt whether the resurrection power has truly been something we've experienced. For some of us, it's a marriage that's crippling or a broken relationship that holds us back from believing and embracing the resurrection. For some of us, it's depression or anxiety that lies to us about our place in God's story and the accomplishment of Jesus. For some of us, it's trauma from our past or or perhaps even current trauma in our present. But the comforting thing for me is that even in scriptures, room is made for us to belong in the story even then. We can place ourselves in the story in a faithful way. Now, to be sure, 
these women, the disciples, they eventually turn around and believe. They do go to Galilee. They do follow Christ. And we're not told how long it took them. You know, maybe it was a short hesitation. Maybe it was the walk back to where the other disciples were. Maybe it was a few hours. What were they wrestling with? How did they wrestle with it? I think it's okay for us to to harbor doubts about the resurrection. We're in good company. The scriptures make room for us. I'm going to give you an observation I've made as a pastor. And I'll just say this for 2019. So January, pastoring this community and some of the other opportunities I get to come alongside people and, and speak truth into their lives. I would say that the description of these women as trembling and bewildered is more or less a good description of how it is most of the time with God's people. We're a little bewildered. We've got some anxieties. We're trembling at a couple things. Now, there are times when we have moments of brilliance and courage, but there are just as many, if not more, times where we seem muddled and clueless, walking around in the dark. I'm going to go ahead and just breach everyone's confidentiality here at the church. So if if I've ever counseled you, you've ever met with me, just know it's all about to, to come out right now. Because here's what, here's what happens. Here's why community is important, too. I'll sit across from a member of the church. I'll sit across from a visitor of the church. I'll sit across from a student, and I'll hear that they're struggling. I'll hear a confession of something they've done or that's been done to them. And I'll hear a sense of inadequacy, a sense of not belonging, and a sense of not belonging to the community. And every time what I tell people, I can't give names, of course, what I tell people is, guess what? If we opened a forum about this on a Sunday morning, perhaps half of our congregation would say they're right there with you. You're not the only one with these doubts. You're not the only one struggling with the sin. You're not the only one not able to completely make these situations in your life perfect. And what happens and, and what I hear is, is people come to church and for the most part we put on a, a nice smile. And we sing the songs like we mean them. And if you watch people do that week in and week out, it, it's not too difficult to make the assumption that they've got it figured out. And I must be alone in not having it figured out. This is one of the reasons as a pastor, I always want to stand up here and let you know before anybody else that I don't have it all figured out. I'm still learning how to journey to Galilee. This is why it's important for us to be honest with each other, to, to be in close community with one another. Everyone I counsel, to a T, they have this sense that they are alone in their inadequacy. And it's simply not true. You are not the only one who struggles with a horrific past. Whether it's things you did, or things that were done to you, 
you're not the only one who wonders whether God can love you. You're not the only one who goes through the intense grief of death or the end of relationships. You're not the only one who doubts. You're not the only one who struggles with depression and anxiety, and sometimes it's so crippling that it seems to be incompatible with your faith. You're not alone. Particularly on this one, trust me, you've got lots of friends in the room. One of them is talking to you. You're not alone with your struggles with sin, with your inability to completely walk out of all the junk that you've built up in your life. Mark's gospel gives us a place to put our human fears, our confusion, a place to let them exist without shame or embarrassment. And the question for us this morning is, Will we settle for rumors of resurrection? Are we, are we going to settle for rumors of Jesus' resurrection? Are we going to settle for rumors of resurrection out and about in our world and in the people in our world? Or will we pursue it? Or will we believe it? Or will we make the bold step to walk towards Galilee, expecting there to see and meet the risen Christ. No matter the cost, no matter the uncertainty. In all the gospel stories, Jesus becomes recognizable to his disciples in unique ways. So I want to point out three of them this morning that, that perhaps might help us as we go forward into a, a future looking to recognize Christ as the resurrected one. The first is, Uh, found in John 20, one of my favorite passages. In hearing Jesus through the Spirit call us by name, we recognize his resurrection and the power available to us. Mary in John 20, Jesus comes up close to her. He says, look, gardener, can you give me some advice here? You know what happened. And then he says her name. And her eyes open, and she sees who it is. If this is very personal, this is an intimate, experiential experience. But I've had a moment like this. I know some in this room have had a moment like this. Where you feel in your heart and your soul, you, you, you know it's as real as anything else. That Jesus comes to you and addresses you by the name your mother gave you before she gave it to you, the name he's known for eternity, the name he's written in his book of life. And you you hear that call from Jesus, and you say, this is the realest thing that I've ever experienced. This is what I'll follow. This is what I'll base my life on. Another illustration of ways the disciples recognize Jesus after these confusions and rumors is in the witness of one another, the witness of the church, and the love and the lives that other people lead. In Luke, it's when Jesus breaks bread with his disciples that they recognize him. It's when they participate in this Eucharistic moment. 
At other times, it's when signs and wonders are performed. Or when Jesus miraculously allows for a, a large haul of fish, that they go, that's Jesus. This is, the, this is the risen one. Clarence Jordan says it like this. I love it. He says, the crowning evidence that Jesus is alive is not a vacant grave, but a spirit-filled community. It's not a rolled-away stone, but a carried-away church. I know I many times have recognized the truth that Christ is resurrected when I'm served by fellow Christians, when I'm forgiven and loved by fellow Christians, when I get to celebrate with them the work God does in their lives. It bears witness. St. Athanasius, who I know is most of your favorite saints in the, the early church, probably familiar with his work, but uh, yesterday, while wasting some time, I was reading his book on the Incarnation, and, and he has this beautiful passage in there on the resurrection where he talks about proofs for the resurrection that are more kind of uh, existential, personal, experiential. And one of them, he says, is the fact that Christians are willing to be martyrs. This martyrdom, he says, that bears proof to the fact that Jesus has resurrected and that his resurrection did defeat death. He says it like this. He says, when you see human beings, men, women, boys and girls, the early church, they were all part of this. When you see them, he says, leap toward death, unafraid of its consequences and corruption. How can this illustrate to you anything other than the truth that death has been defeated and that Christ is risen? He says, for, for if you saw a lion playing, a child playing with a lion, you'd assume three things. One, the child's not going to be there for much longer. He didn't say that one. I'm adding that third one there. He says, the two other things, you see them playing nicely, right? There's only two possibilities related. One, that the lion has been defeated. It's dead. And then two, that it's lost its power. This is, this is, in a sense, very convincing proof to Athanasius. And I wonder sometimes it's, if it's perhaps our lack of theology of martyrdom, the lack of, of um, emphasis in our Western culture when it comes to the Christian faith of sacrifice and, and denying ourselves and laying down our own lives, that hurts us, takes away from us the blessings of seeing more proof of Jesus' victory over death. Athanasius says that, in fact, the martyrs are trophies that Jesus puts on display to illustrate his victory. The church and its faithfulness bears witness. It helps us recognize Jesus. And then in our own lives, we recognize Jesus. When when new creation starts to happen in us, when the Spirit starts to work and move in us, it's something that takes time, and, and we've got to be patient. But when we find that we are now forgiving our enemies, when we find that we are, now, we are now being generous with our time and resources and money, when we find now that, that we are loving in a self-sacrificial and service manner, not all the time, but more than before, it's in our own lives when we see the transformation of the Spirit that we recognize Jesus as the risen one who is alive. 
the disciples are ultimately called to follow the risen Jesus to Galilee. And they're called to go to Galilee to re-engage with his mission. Jesus, his resurrection, he calls us forward into a future that's going to change our lives, change our presence. Because the, open, the empty tomb in Mark leads to Galilee, where we'll find ourselves now advocating for the kind of boundary-breaking that was characteristic of Jesus, touching the kind of lepers that Jesus was famous for touching, forgiving sins the way that Jesus is known for offering forgiveness, socializing with prostitutes, cavorting and parting with tax collectors, breaking unjust laws meant to oppress people, uplifting and honoring women, including all people, challenging the empire and the powers to be. We go to Galilee to re-engage Jesus on his mission. You can never separate the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ from his life. They're one piece. Jesus dies as a direct result of his life. And Jesus' resurrection is, in one way, God saying the way you killed him was wrong. You said he wasn't the Lord and Messiah, and I'm saying, yes, he was. I'm vindicating that claim. And in the second way, he's saying, and his work of defeating death is going to continue. His ministry is not over. It will last eternally. The Gospel of Mark is all about this kind of warfare mentality. Jesus shows up, and to demons, he casts them out. To sins, he forgives them. To sick people, he heals them. To dead people, he raises them. It's this work of new creation, of the kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven, that we'll find ourselves called to if we keep walking on the journey to Galilee expecting to see him and meet him there. This morning, the rumors are afloat. Rumors of resurrection. And I wonder, are you okay settling for the rumors? Leaving this place in confusion or in fear or with apathy? Or do you want more? Or do you want a journey and see and meet the resurrected Christ? Do you want to boldly go forward and live the resurrection life as you courageously follow this risen one? The news hasn't changed. The invitation hasn't changed. In many ways, the path before us hasn't changed. It's changed just you and I and whether we will make these decisions. What started as perhaps idle talk in the minds of some of the disciples thousands of years later has been crystallized in the most beautiful truths of world history in the Christian faith. Christ is risen.